This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. How a humble bag became the literary world's humble brag. Marjorie Nicolau reads Tote Couture. This is an article titled Tote Couture by Maya Kapler. In the 1880s, a newspaper owner named Jasper Meek was looking out the window of his print shop in Coshocton, Ohio, when he saw a young girl drop her school bags. As the story now goes, the sight inspired him to fashion a burlap bag in which people could carry books. But Meek also had an entrepreneurial mind, and he figured out a way to maximize his profit. He'd charge local businesses to print their names on the bags, which then served as tiny billboards as they were carried across town. Canvas as a textile wasn't unusual among labourers. But the tote's commercial popularity began in 1944, when L.L. Bean launched what was then called the ice bag, because it was originally used to literally carry ice. The bag was relaunched in the 60s and hasn't changed in any meaningful way since. Wide, made of structured canvas with a flat bottom, reinforced handles and a trim available in several colours, and the option of a custom monogram. The company now offers a variety of shapes and sizes, but the classic tote is still one of its best sellers. In the decades that followed, totes have grown from a journeyman stable to a ubiquitous literary trophy on the streets of many major cities as well as on Instagram and TikTok. Concerns about single-use plastics over the past few years have undoubtedly fueled the demand. But there's also a mystique to the tote. It has gone on to inspire high-end designers. You can now own leather or cowhide versions by Prada, Hermes or The Row. The tote bag fits a larger trend of the democratization of fashion. Dickie Yangzom, a cultural and economic sociologist at New York University, told Vox in 2022. Similarly to utility wear and fashion with the rise of the jumpsuit, this wasn't designed for mass fashion. It was more geared towards people who do more manual work, right? So all these categories are shifting. Yangzom says that tote bags, having moved past their humble origins, are here to stay. Sarah Marie McMahon, based in Toronto, is an editor at the children's book publisher Anik Press and founder of the now-defunct Worn Fashion Journal. She says that, much like T-shirts, tote bags frequently communicate to others in a way that's overtly literal – through printed text. Something that people can carry around becomes a talking point, McMahon says. It helps that, as far as branded merch goes, totes are relatively easy to produce. Unlike T-shirts, they're one-size-fits-all, and unlike mugs, they provide a flat surface that allows for an easy image transfer. Totes also have something of an anti-fashion aspect. Plainness is the point. But scarcity can be part of their value too. As a former bookseller at Book City, an independent bookstore with four Toronto locations, Catherine Phillips got a lot of free totes from publishers. Many are limited edition promotional items and are available for sale, which makes them even more coveted among collectors. While one of her favourites is a tote with a slight rephrase of a quote attributed to Louisa May Alcott, quote, She is too fond of books 
and it has addled her brain. Another is a promo item bearing the cover of Sheila Hetty's experimental novel Pure Colour. The one that gets the most comments, she says, is the tote bag she has from the House of Anansi, an independent Canadian publisher whose authors include Margaret Atwood and Patrick DeWitt. The Anansi bag simply has the brand's logo, an unassuming letter A in a yellow circle, with the word Anansi below it. It's showing, not telling. You wouldn't know it's a literary tote unless you happen to be a literary person. I get stopped every time I wear that one, Philip says. Everyone wants to replicate the success of the New Yorker's tote. But that's hard to do. The magazine didn't invent the literary tote bag, but it capitalized on the idea at the right time. The design was first floated in 2013. But the bag, in its current look, really took off in 2014, when a promotion for a free tote with a yearly subscription started in full force. The same year, the website put up its metered paywall, according to John Carter, Global Director of Customer Revenue for The New Yorker. The bag was designed by the magazine's art department, helmed by then-creative director Wyatt Mitchell. Deanna Donegan, who was an editorial graphic designer at the time, says in an email that they didn't realize they were creating an object that would become a phenomenon. The resulting design, now immortalized on canvas bags across the world, accidentally committed a serious branding sin that Donegan only later realized was something of a faux pas. The magazine's name appears in oversized letters that keep expanding in size as the lines descend. It's legible in full only once, in the middle, inside the O. If I was a more seasoned designer at the time, I might have thought twice about dissecting the wordmark so haphazardly. I later learned that most brands, especially legacy brands like the New Yorker, have strict rules about how their wordmark can be handled, she says. That often means no changes to the colour, no new additions, and no unprecedented line breaks. And here I was, chopping it to pieces and reassembling it. That lack of self-consciousness, though, led to a design she was proud of. On its new canvas landscape, the wordmark became abstract, but still immediately recognisable, thanks to the century-old Irvin typeface that had graced the cover of The New Yorker since its inception, Donegan says. It had been refreshed and modernised, in my humble opinion, while still retaining its identity. The bag has become the least exclusive status symbol, according to an Instagram account made for the bag itself. By 2017, MarketWatch reported more than 500,000 bags had been given away. The introductory subscription offer that year was US$49. Before the New Yorker tote became a symbol of literary sophistication, there was the Strands. The enormous Manhattan shop boasts that it's the world's biggest independent bookstore. McMahon subscribes to the theory that its label-bearing tote was the New Yorker's predecessor as the go-to objet d'art of the literati. She gets extra cred for owning a bag from the store before it expanded in 2005. Current totes from the Strand carry its slogan, 18 miles of books. But McMahon and her husband have one from those pre-expansion days when it was just 8 miles of books. We have an old one with the old number and I'm stupidly proud, she says. The Strand now has a tote bag section on its website and ships internationally, meaning an in-person pilgrimage and the exclusivity that comes with it is no longer a requirement for carrying the bag around. 
Phillips mentions the term tote brag, something she came across a few years ago to describe the kind of person who lets a tote bag express that they're an interesting person without them actually doing anything. In some ways, a $25 literary press tote bag is just as much an it bag as the Hermes Birkin. Birkins can't be purchased by just anyone with tens of thousands of dollars to spare. They're distributed at the discretion of shopkeepers. The bags are coveted because they project something money can't buy, a level of access most people don't have. It's not dissimilar to the sway held by people who carry around the tote bag from the German bookstore chain Hugendubel, with its mysterious Gothic lettering and one circular red pattern. Because it carries no discernible branding, it's near impossible for outsiders to the literary world to identify. But to the people in the know, it's a status symbol. The literary tote is the perfect signifier for this moment in time because of its inherent contradictions. Its lofty, high-minded ideals are represented by an item that's earthy and utilitarian. It communicates rarefied taste, but it's too functional to be pretentious. It's just a bag, Philip says. But it's so much more than a bag at this point. That was an article titled Tote Couture by Maya Kapla. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio was Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.